Hello, Dallas Rogers here, and welcome to the Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It is really great to have you along. And have we got a treat for you today. A discussion about speculative fiction and cities with a really fantastic panel. You might be familiar with James Bradley. He's an award-winning author and critic and the author of books such as Clade and The Silent Invasion. Matt Levinson is a built environment professional from Sydney and he's a very keen reader of all things urban. Professor Nicole Gurren is an urban planner and as you'll hear in a sec, she's also a really keen reader of speculative fiction. And we kick off this panel today by talking about the city we became. And now I'll hand over to our host, Dr. Rebecca Clements. All right, so I'll throw my first question to Nicole first. What can we learn about thinking about cities and urban change from the city we became? Yeah, look, it's possibly worth sort of setting up what the book is about, um, which is really a, a phenomenal metaphor about the forces for, I guess, evil and destruction that are facing New York City and sort of its wider metropolis. And the metaphor, well, for me anyway, the metaphor happens by personifying the different um, parts of the city into actual personalities. And if I step back and think, you know, what can we learn from that device? I mean, there, there are the obvious lessons about the need to protect what we love and what we value about cities as, as phenomenally complex but amazing places from the forces that, you know, are seemingly out to destroy them, like rapacious real estate developments, like, you know, an authoritarian government, police state, but also social divisions like, you know, racism and inequality. But that central allegory of personifying particular places in the city for me represents how deeply our own personal identities are sort of vested in where we live, you know, as well as where we come from, but often where we've actually moved to because some of the characters in Jemison's New York are actually recent, you know, migrants to the city. And that place-based and personal identity, I think, is something that we need to understand when we are looking at how we, you know, how we govern cities and how they change. Fantastic. And I'm, I might throw to you, Matt, to get the your insights on the same question. What what can we learn about thinking about cities and urban change from this book? Yeah, look, it's such an interesting question. And, you know, I think Nicole was spot on kind of pulling out that sort of sense of place. You know, a lot of novels are set in a place, but, you know, in this novel, the characters are the place. And I think that is such an interesting aspect to this. And the more that I thought about it as I was reading it and since I finished it, the more I thought just how important and how vital it is to 
to think about our cities and our places in that way. You know, these are incredibly complex mixes of variables you know cities we we have a tendency to sort of think simply we can we can package up a city and think about it as a planning instrument or a series of planning instruments or a train map or maybe even through history and you know uh, you know books of history and and telling of the stories but they're just so ineffably complex and there is no way that we can simply kind of even hold it in our heads at one time and that's what life is, right? Life is life is this emergent thing that that appears when you've got an incredibly complex system. And so this story, I mean, it sort of reminded me a bit of Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad in terms of bringing sort of a magical aspect to something that was real. But actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, this is a really, actually, potentially even almost factual way of thinking about the city. It is is actually a living kind of, you know, complex thing. And there's something so deep about that when you think about it. You know, these cities are one of the things that really grabbed me when I was reading the story was the sense that that process of becoming a city was something really involuntary and unexpected. It was shocking to the people who became cities. And it happened at a moment when they were not expecting it at all. And it didn't, I mean, one of the, one of the people who became a city was a, a city councillor, but another person was just like a brand new migrant who was living in a small apartment and had built this really deep community within that apartment. And I really love that sort of insight into what actually makes a city work. And yeah, I, I, I think as someone who thinks really a lot about what makes cities work, it makes me think differently about that. And that's a, that's a really important job for a novel. Mm, it's, that's, it's a really, really fascinating dynamic. And, and just one thing you said there was about the complexity of cities is almost more than we can hold in our thoughts. So it sounds like it has something to say about the limits of knowledge as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, great cities... I'm, I'm reading a quote from the book at the moment. Great cities are like any other living things, being born and maturing and wearing and dying in their turn. Enough human beings in one place, vary the strains enough, make the growth medium fertile enough, and your kind develops, you know, the city. You eat each other's cuisines, you learn new techniques, new spice combinations, trade new ingredients, and you grow stronger. It's all that kind of stuff that, you know, it's pretty hard to to systematize that, turn it into a process or really understand it in a simple way. Um, And that has real implications for people who are thinking about how you intervene in the city and how you make decisions around the city. Um, Because some of those simple ideas, which are really attractive and seductive um, and important because we have to be able to make decisions about the future of the city, um, they're always going to be just a patch to, to a real, really deep understanding of the city. And uh, James, what are your thoughts on the book? Yeah, look, I, I, I would say much what Matt just said about the kind of the thing I found fascinating was the way it works as a, as a metaphor for the city as a kind of emergent organic kind of system. Um, and one thing that's really interesting around that is both, I mean, as Matt said, about kind of complexity, but also about kind of flows of people, flows of energy, flows of knowledge and culture through through cities, that kind of sense that they are systems within which things move through, combine, change. But for me, in an odd way, the thing that I found really interesting and quite powerful in the book was the way 
it wants to grapple with the kind of historical origins of that particular city. There's a moment about halfway through the book where where it says this this city was built on black bodies. You know, there's this sense that the kind of slave trade lies underneath that city. And and you have that kind of projected forward in the novel towards, I mean, I think, in fact, that I actually think the best bit in the novel, there's a long sequence with a group of kind of 4chan, you know, kind of art bros who turn up in a gallery trying to sell this kind of provocative art. And it's a really lovely, it, it's a beautifully staged kind of comic piece, kind of set piece in the novel. But what it kind of, I think, kind of highlights is the way those kind of power dynamics are embedded in the structure of the city. I mean, the way that kind of racial division and racial inequity is kind of embedded in the city, but also the way that our stories about cities make particular kinds of history invisible. You know, and so what the novel's doing is something about bringing that invisible history out so we can see it, kind of making it visible, which I thought was really interesting. And it, it sounds like that sort of um, uh, embeddedness of, of like a, a racialized history has implications for, uh, you know, the, the contemporary events, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all over the contemporary events, but, I mean, it's something that is absolutely, when we think about cities, when we think about particularly cities moving forward and moving into whole series of questions about kind of climate impacts and things like that, all of those questions, particularly in the US around kind of racial division, are absolutely central to how they think about cities, what they're going to do about them, how you're going to manage those kinds of divisions moving forward. So it's a, it's an interesting metaphor for thinking about those things as well, I think. You also, I mean, when you think about New York, you know, Robert Moses is is um, name-checked at one point in the book as a potential weapon, you know, of the city. Um, but his history of running highways through some of these um, neighbourhoods and really destroying kind of emergent communities, you know, that is so tightly tied to, you know, the civil rights movement in the 60s and the way that a, a lot of the kind of politics that's really building to, to where we're at now comes from. So, you know, there, there is a really tight connection between, um, you know, between the physical kind of planning interventions and the cultural kind of stuff, you know, the political uh, ferment. And, you know, to your point um, about that, that culture, I feel um, one of the things that really struck me about the book is the way that, you know, there are a lot of these characters are actually characters that come from an oppressed background but they're, they're not characters that don't have agency. They are powerful and angry and fierce and have agency and make change. And it's a really, I love the framing and the positioning of these characters. You know, there is a cultural conflict here. These, these characters are really strong and they're powerful. And, and, that's, and in some cases, they're only just finding their power. But, you know, like that is a really um, compelling and, and exciting part of the book. That's, that's absolutely right. But and it goes to one of the other things I think the book does, which is kind of done just kind of tacitly at one point, which I think is really interesting, which is about – I spoke before about the idea of making the invisible visible. But there's that wonderful moment where they point out that when we think of New York, everyone thinks of Manhattan. But in fact, Manhattan is not the population centre of New York at all. It's not even the kind of cultural centre of New York. And it's that, in a sense, pointing out that the the cultural the, – the, the population centre of New York is in fact – I now actually forget where it was. I can't remember whether it was in Brooklyn or the Bronx or Queens. But but it's outside of that kind of, you know, that kind of storied New York that people think of. And I suspect, I'm not an urban planner, but I suspect that kind of refocusing 
of attention away from what we think of as the city towards where the city actually is. It's quite an interesting, quite an interesting process. Yeah, that, that sounds really fascinating because it seems like a lot of fiction, I suppose, that includes a city in a, in a sense as a major character is still sort of focused on perhaps the, the major identity of, of a city or, or the central area of a city, whereas this one seems like it's, it's expressly bringing in that complexity of, of a city system uh, in, and all of its various flows and layers. Is it worth reading out that section? Because I marked that and I thought that was a terrific part of the book. You can always um, Go always it. cut it out later. Abruptly, Brooklyn groans, sighs and rubs her eyes. Fuck it, let's focus. Okay, New York for beginners. She turns on her phone, swipes past a couple of apps and then turns it on so he can see. It's the MTA subway map, familiar to him already. Manhattan, she says. Sorry, no American accent here. <laughs> That's me. Manhattan, she says, pointing to the narrow island in the middle. He resists the urge to twist, to twitch. Then she starts at the top and moves in a clockwise half circle around the island, using a little stylus to point to each borough. The Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island. That's the official city, even though Long Island's actually the same island that Brooklyn and Queens are on. Are on. Yonkers managed to keep from getting counted as part of the city. Staten Island tried to get away and lost. And then there's Jersey. She rolls her eyes. What about Jersey? It's Jersey. So anyway, this map, it's bullshit. This is the first thing most people see when they come here. Even people who've been here for years think this is the city. She shakes the phone for emphasis. They think Manhattan is the centre of everything where most of the city's population is actually in the boroughs. They think Staten Island is some tiny thing an afterthought because they shrank it down to fit this map, but it's bigger than the Bronx, at least geographically. So lesson one of New York, what people think about us isn't what we really are. And there's something interesting there also about the way you see and experience cities. I mean, there's that thing with cities like New York and I think London and Paris as well, particularly where you've got those really iconic kind of maps of the underground and the metro, you know, they become the way, they're one of the ways that people experience the city. If you're someone who walks, you experience the city completely differently. If you're someone who drives everywhere, you experience, you know, but there are different ways of knowing and experiencing and and kind of mapping at a kind of cognitive and cultural level the kind of space of the city. Fantastic. And James, you've got kind of a, a unique uh, skill set on this panel, which is that you're often behind the writing of, of fiction like that. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to write this type of fiction. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not uh, – look, I write stuff that's in a kind of speculative mode. I'm never sure that I'm – I think I, I sit in that kind of uneasy sort of interstitial space. <laughs> but um, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, uh, I think often when – we think about these kinds of books. They, they become part and parts of discussions like this. So there's this kind of sense that they're being used to kind of illustrate particular conversations. I'm not sure that when writers or particularly myself tend to go into them, you're thinking about them in that systematic way. I mean, I think writing a novel like any form of writing is always a kind of process of exploration. Um, and I think that what you're often trying to do is to kind of think something through. Um, so certainly... So the novel I wrote before Last Clade, which is about set across kind of 70 years against the kind of backdrop of kind of hastening climate change, that was very much about me going, 
I have this kind of psychological thing where when I try to think about what the world's going to be like in 50 or 60 or 70 years, I can't imagine it. So I kind of wrote a novel to think that through. Like, what's it going to be like? If I've got to think about what the actual experience of getting there and what the world will be like then, that's what it'll be like. So there's that kind of thought experiment thing going on. There's a wonderful construction of science fiction. You know, the purpose of science fiction is to ask the next question. You know, what? but, you know, but what if, you know, and and I think that's often true of this kind of writing. People are People are asking those kinds of questions, but I think I do think that the process of writing and of coming up with it is always very much about, certainly for me, about trying to explore something, about trying to find something, about trying to, to, to think something through. Um, and I guess with the city stuff, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about cities, particularly in kind of speculative fiction and to some extent kind of well, science fiction and fantasy, is that they end up being often existing within a series of oppositions. So you have a kind of opposition between the you know, the city is this kind of centre of corruption and vice and criminality as opposed to the kind of bucolic pastoral outside. Um, And it means that the city frequently ends up being this kind of very, I think very kind of negative kind of environment often. It's a place of extremes of wealth. It's a place of extremes of um, uh, of inequality, you know. I mean, so it becomes this kind of engine of usually kind of capitalist inequality, which makes it a kind of a very powerful symbol for that. And you see that work through in all kinds of people's writing. But you see it also doing other things. I mean, there's people like China Mieville. There's a book called The City in the City, which does something really interesting about this kind of, like I've never been quite sure whether they're literally in the same space or not, but it's about these cities that can't see each other, you know. And uh, and then at the other end, you get really interesting books like New York Stanley Robinson's Kim Stanley Robinson's um, New York Twenty One Forty, which takes that idea of the city as a kind of hub of capitalist inequality and pushes it to the next stage and says, so what happens when you get to the revolution? Like, what happens when the city becomes? a place where we start to push back in some of those stuff, start to build a society which is fairer. So, I mean, there's something, it can take on all kinds of roles, I think, in the work. Mm. And it sounds like, you know, you're talking about uh, the writer or the author sort of um, exploring an idea through a particular work and and particularly with um, speculative fiction, that's, you know, that's exactly what's happening. And then it kind of goes, I suppose, into a you know a broader explana- uh, exploration rather through uh, people who are reading it, people who are talking about it, reading groups, you know, groups like like this right here where we're having a discussion about it, and so it it raises, as you were getting at there, that role of stories like this helping us to think through the realities of of our own urban challenges and, and urban dynamics. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things I, you know, one of the things I find a bit disappointing, in fact, about lots of the kind of representations of the city in contemporary fiction is that they seem to remain trapped within a conception of the city which is essentially atomized, you know, kind of capitalist um, and... And I guess they don't kind of push through to other kind of conceptions of the city. I mean, I think there's some really interesting, some really interesting questions that you get in someone like yeah, you know, I talked about Kim Stanley Robinson. That you get in kind of Robinson's work around how might cities work well, 
you know, how might, you know, how might a fairer city operate? You know, what, what might a, what might a city that was, that was not like that look like and how might we get there? Now, again, I'm not sure that it's necessarily the business of fiction to be having those kinds of, those kinds of theoretical discussions. I mean, you know, when you're writing a novel, you're, you're asking what's it like. You're trying to to kind of put feelings into words. You're trying to, to do a kind of creative thing. You know, it's about trying to capture something, something ineffable, which is, which is not quite the same as kind of playing out social scenarios. But I mean, I, some of the books I think are really exciting that talk about kind of urban landscapes are the ones that talk about things like pervasive surveillance, you know, I mean, which is one of those things that we don't see represented enough in in books and seems to me to be really problematic. There's a fantastic book by a, a guy called Tim Morn called Infinite Detail, which you did. <laughs> That's nodding. It's a fantastic book. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's really, really fascinating about what, you know, what revolution might look like, what surveillance might mean for our kind of personal freedoms, what it might do to urban spaces. You know, William Gibson writes, I think, really beautifully around some of those questions as well about trying to think them through. And in fact, I think Gibson's just written two books of what will eventually be a trilogy, which are set between kind of, well, essentially kind of just a little bit ahead from us now and then about 100 years, I think, in the future. Um, And... What they do, I think, is do something quite interesting about what that city of the future might look like. Now, one of the things that worries me slightly about his representation of is that all the people are gone. So there's been this massive collapse of world population. But there is something about what this kind of like completely mechanised, completely information-based kind of world might look like, which is very interesting. You know, another um, novelist that that I've just loved everything they've they've worked on in the last little while is Annalee Newitz. They wrote a really great book called Autonomous, which was, you know, in a similar way, exploring at what point autonomous or artificial intelligence becomes, you know, sentient and, you know, becomes something that you can love or that should be treated um, sort of, you know, on an equal standing to humanity. And I think that kind of goes to that sort of similar point about exploring some of these ideas. I, I don't see it as the job of the novelist to to do that heavy lifting, but one of the things that they can do is just follow a thought experiment for a while and take us somewhere that we didn't know about. And that can really pull the whole conversation, whether that's, you know, the the public conversation, the policy making, the the broader kind of thrust of society across into another space that opens up a whole bunch of opportunity. And um the role of characters and character design, I suppose, uh, in something like this, you know, because cities themselves are, or or suburbs or areas of cities, places are are personified in this book. Uh, Do you have any insight into character creation in this sort of context? Because obviously authors are sort of bringing their own ideas and biases and and stereotypes. And in, in this situation, you've got the dynamic where you're doing that with both people and place at the same time, in a sense. Well, to be fair, I think you're always doing it with people in place. I mean, I think that place is always a kind of character in novels. Well, not always, but mostly. Because one of the things, you know, novels take place in landscapes. You know, they take place in both kind of social and physical landscapes, and often those things are are intertwined. And, you know, there's a level also where there's a, there's a very old characterization of story, and they say, look, you know, there's there's only two stories. There's... A stranger comes to town and there's somebody goes on a journey, you know, and they're both 
about kind of movement through landscape. So in one, someone arrives in a landscape and the other one, someone walks somewhere. You know, and I'm not sure that I think all stories are actually that, but it, it, it's a kind of interesting way of thinking about the process of story. So I mean, place is always, I think, really central to stories. And you really see that in, you know, those kind of great novels of the 19th century, but you see it in a lot of contemporary fiction and a lot of contemporary speculative fiction, which is very much about trying to kind of capture what the experience of living in the kind of landscapes we inhabit today is like. And I mean, and to go back to what I'm pushing back slightly against kind of instrumentalising of novels a moment ago, but one of the things I do think novels are doing all the time is trying to tell us what it's like. Like, what what is it like to live now? Or what are the textures of living now? What do they feel like? And uh, what would it feel like to live somewhere else in another time? You know, like... Th- that kind of thought experiment is something that novels are always engaged in. So I think place is always there. And and in terms of kind of bringing it out, it's that kind of imaginative process of trying to, I guess, give shape to something through the imagination and trying to kind of bring into language those those things which are not necessarily linguistic in nature, you know, so kind of describing the particular colour of the air, describing the kind of noise, you know, describing the, I guess, the experience of being in those kinds of places. I mean, there's a a reason, I think, that so much, you know, detective fiction takes place in those kind of highly alienated kind of landscapes, you know, because that's about trying to give shape to that kind of texture of a particular kind of, particular kind of world. You know, there was so much um, of that character development about the place in this book that just stood out to me. At one point, I just started writing down some of the descriptions when they wrote about the layers of flies at a tourist stand that only the character could see, the irritation of a suburban chain franchise, the athlete's foot, and how that kind of irritated the sort of the sense of the, you know, the character developing there, the train aching for a coating of paint on its sleek but boring silver skin, a renovated brownstone that, you know, they've done a reno at the front and it's blocked off um, the access. So it's less connected and it's kind of almost like Jane Jacobs weaponized, you know, they can't actually get in there. One of the things that I really loved about, about this book was um, actual characteristics of the city become weapons in the armory of the characters. So, you know, the bus ride out to LaGuardia, you know, becomes like actually a weapon that can be used against these attackers. The Long Island radiation, the the railroad out to Long Island, you know, these things become things that can be coiled up and, and weaponized. Um, the battle wraps of the city, um, Grandmaster Flash, uh, Warhol, the Velvets, Robert Moses, even Trump sort of come up at various points as, you know, the and, you know, I guess when you think about it, when you think about the authentic, the real culture of the city, those things are things that have emerged in New York and emerged in specific places in New York. And it's actually their emergence that becomes the stuff that makes the city so powerful and so fertile and so interesting. And sometimes we forget about those and we think about the policy that created those. Actually, those things themselves have an incredible power. And I I love the idea that they can rise up to actually be things that can defend the city from attack from outside, which is just amazing. 
So in a way, it's sort of opening up the ideas of what can actually influence and make change in a city beyond policy, beyond what we often think of as as sort of the formal spaces of, of urban change. Yeah, celebrating the specific stuff rather than, you know, with policy, you try and scale to the abstract and you think about something that is general enough to operate at the scale of a city. But actually, it's the corner shop. And it's the community that builds in a single apartment building. And it's, you know, like Warhol and the Velvets and the factory and all that kind of amazing, you know, blend of music and dance and art at one point. You know, it's that stuff that makes the city. And that's really, you know, that's difficult for a policymaker to think about, like how you actually take advantage of that and think about how to flow that through. But it's also offers so much potential to to think differently about a city. So I might jump over to you, Nicole. How how might we bring the insights from dystopian and speculative fiction to our urban research and built environment professions? Yeah, look, there's the obvious. Dystopian fiction operates as a warning to us and cities are often the site of, you know, the most horrific urban dystopias that are afflicted by you know, total climate catastrophe and you know, deep, social division and inequality, uh, you know, the, the, the confluence of, I guess, techno-capitalism and far-right extreme is, um, you know, politics. My gateway actually into dystopian urban fiction was Octavia Butler and I uh, was recommended Octavia Butler in, um, in Berkeley, San Francisco in January 2020 which um, was a, an amazing time to pick up the book The Parable of the Sower. And at that time, I like to say I brought it to Australia because after I read it, I took it into my secondhand bookshop, Urchin Books in Marrickville Road, and I said, I need every other book that's been written by Octavia Butler. And at that point they said, well, there's none actually new or secondhand available in Australia. So I like to say, now you can find it. Um, But really that was such an amazingly prophetic book about the impact of all of those things, extraordinarily set in 2020, in the 2020s, you know, just a few years ahead of us. And it prophesies the impacts of your climate disaster, of deep social divisions. There was even a passage for the academics in it about academics who were telecommuting to their students, you know, via, she didn't use the word Zoom, but via their laptops. And the horror of, you know, the death and the destruction and the, and the political divisions, etc. So that was a gateway for me. But um, so I guess urban dystopian fiction operates as a warning. But on a much deeper level, whether we talk about urban dystopia or whether we talk about fiction more widely, for me um, as an urbanist, it does two things. One, it develops our empathy muscle and actually the central, I guess, the the thinly disguised um, allegory in Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower was actually that empathy was the superpower that could actually carry that central character through. 
And I think for planners, it's not our job to assume the different perspectives of all of the diverse communities that we plan with and, you know, sometimes um, so-called for, but it is, but we need an empathy muscle to understand that there are multiple perspectives and voices that need to be brought to the table about places that we care for. Um, you know, so so there's that. And then the other muscle that I think the work of fiction writers do, you know, whether it be urban dystopia, whether it be Qui-Fi, I'm also a big fan of, or whether it be, you know, crime fiction or 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 what we might consider high literature, it is actually switching on our imaginations. The the in ways that, you know, a, a planning instrument or a government decision-making process or a lecture can't really do. It, it helps us, you know, feel with our whole selves, you know, the, the amazing, you know, wonderful things or awful things about places. And so it's that, it's that sparking the imagination and giving us the opportunity of immersion that I think fiction does more broadly and utopian or dystopian fiction does so powerfully it helps us you know imagine where we're going in the worst possible way but also if we look at you know speculative and utopian outcomes it also imagines where we could go in the best um, possible way as well and usually through the allegory of people coming together and valuing communities and 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 using those powers and uh, Matt, also coming from the policy space, how do you sort of think that we bring insights from dystopian and speculative fiction into our professions? Well, you know, look, I think Nicole just really nailed it. I mean, I, I love the the leading with empathy, but but imagination is is just so crucial. You know, when we're dealing with complex topics, and you know. Um, James, you mentioned Clade before, and for me, that was one of those books that really helped me think through, you know, I've been working in climate for a long time, as, you know, as a researcher and journalist and what have you, And but reading that book um, along, I, I read another book around a similar time, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, um, and a series of books that really allowed me to really actually think about climate change as not like something that's you know, for my grandchildren, but actually something that's happening now and here's how it might play out, you know, that is crucial to building empathy because you can't have empathy if you can't imagine what other people are experiencing, what you yourself might experience. Um, and so novels like like that are really crucial. So, you know, I, I said earlier, I think they create, they create a more space for some of those pragmatic policy responses to move because because it's really hard to move um, policy it's it's risky it's politically deeply contentious these are some of the most politically contentious issues possible so if you can pull the public conversation in the direction of something that is actually really practically possible you create the space for a much more fruitful policy discussion and I think that that that's not the job of a novelist. I think fundamentally the job of a novelist is to write amazing novels that are gripping and transport you and, and take you places that you couldn't imagine. But one of the byproducts of a great novel is that it can create space for this great, for the rest of society to catch up in a way. We should say that N.K. Jemison, you know, most popular series, which was actually the first 
my first entry point to uh, to their work was the Broken Earth trilogy, and that is just such a powerful illustration of what Matt's talking about, because Jemison creates an alternative, I guess, universe where we're able to, the reader is able to rewire our own brains away from, you know, the dominance of the human species, away from our assumptions around race and binary genders and, you know, really helps progress us forward into into a way of thinking about, you know, society and humans' role you know, within our own world in a in a different way. And I think it's that sort of the transformative power of that type of immersive fiction, which is perhaps what Matt's talking about. And that's why, you know, we're so fascinated to see Jemison now apply this to the city in what we hope will be a trilogy. Thanks for listening to this Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It was really great to have you along. Make sure you check out the City Road Podcast website for other conversations just like this. And we'll see you very soon on the podcast. Bye-bye.